I'll invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. While you're doing that, let me ask you a question. How many of you were here last Sunday morning? And you came back? Wow, praise the Lord. Now, for those of you that weren't here, you're probably wondering what's that about. We started a series last Sunday morning uh, on some things that, uh, on a subject that the Lord really dealt with me about uh, teaching, and it's uh, really the dirty word of the church, and it's the word sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 says, but of him, talking to the church, talking to you and me as Christians, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom. Everybody thanks God for wisdom, don't we? And righteousness, what a wonderful thing righteousness is. And sanctification, we kind of skip over that part. And redemption, praise God for redemption. But notice the Bible says that sanctification is just as much a part of what we have in Christ Jesus as wisdom, righteousness, and redemption. Now sanctification, the word sanctification literally means to to make clean or to make holy. And you see the word used in, um, uh, see the word sanctify used in the Old Testament a lot more than you do in the New And it was a a very uh, strict ritual whereby uh, elements of the temple, implements of the temple and so forth were uh, sanctified and separated unto God for uh, religious purposes or for worship purposes. And that's uh, that's really the concept behind the word or the the idea of uh, sanctification. And that is something that is made clean or holy for the specific purpose of either serving God or the worship of God. Now, the Bible talks about Old Testament things being sanctified, but very rarely does it talk about people being sanctified. The exception to that would be the uh, the priest, uh, whenever the high priest was uh, uh, initiated and anointed and, and so forth, then uh, there would be a ritual cleansing that he would have to, partake, to participate in, and there would be an anointing upon him, and, and uh, even the, the blood of slain animals would be touched upon his ear and his fingertips and his toes and some of that kind of thing, separating for the service of God. But under the New Covenant, the only thing that the Bible does talk about sanctifying is you. The only thing that the Bible talks about being sanctified is you and that which you need for the service or the worship of God. Now, we made mention of this last Sunday morning, and, uh, and I think it uh, bears repetition for those of you that weren't with us. There's a real, um, well, I hate to say controversy because nobody talks about sanctification. But among doctrinal and theological circles, there is disagreement about whether sanctification was a one-time event or whether it's a process and a continuous event. And the reason there's disagreement on that is because the Bible talks about it both ways. For example, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, talking about the Corinthian church, that they used to be sinners, and it mentions different sins that they were involved in, but it says, but you were washed and you were sanctified. Well, that tells us, therefore, and there are other scriptures that support that, that tells us, therefore, that the cleansing and the making, make it the, the, the means whereby we are made holy was the blood of Jesus. Yet the Bible also says there are other scriptures that talk about how that our lifestyle provides sanctification for us. And so in religious circles, some people take one verse of scripture and say, well, it's already a done thing. Jesus did it. Sanctification is just a one-time event, and that's it. And then others say, but the Bible speaks of lifestyle as being a means of sanctification. So it's not a one-time event. It's a continuous event. Well, which is it? It's both. You were sanctified by the blood of Jesus. You were made righteous and made holy and separated unto God by the blood of Jesus. And nothing else could do it except the blood of Jesus. But that doesn't mean you're off the hook from there on out. Now, even though Paul doesn't speak of and doesn't use the word sanctify or sanctification very much, and neither do the other gospel, uh, the other uh, writers of the New Testament, the, the concept of lifestyle is spoken about in every letter written to the church. For example, he told the church in Ephesus, Paul told the church in Ephesus, writing by the Holy Ghost, he said, put away lying. Let him that stole steal no more. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about lifestyle. To the Thessalonians, he said, walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. What's he talking about? He's talking about lifestyle. So even though the word sanctification is not used, the concept of sanctification is all throughout the, the, the New Testament. Now, it's, um, uh, in my opinion, the summary, the summation of the process of sanctification, the lifestyle, of sanctif- the lifestyle that brings us sanctification or cleanses us, cannot be 
spiritual sanctification. You can't sanctify yourself spiritually. Only the blood of Jesus can and did do that. That's done. So it's more of a righteousness versus fellowship issue. Because just as you can't make yourself any more righteous, you can't make yourself any more sanctified in spirit. Now, you have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. That means your spirit is made righteous. But there's a lot you can do to to, uh, live out that righteousness in your life, isn't there? So turn with me over to Romans chapter 12. Paul, in writing to the church, gives us the key for sanctification. And I, I think one of the reasons there's a, um, uh, well, is it misunderstanding, maybe lack of understanding about what real Bible sanctification is, is because we presented it as this real hard, thou shalt not do this concept. The church, whenever it talks about lifestyle, is always talking about something that, that people are in the wrong about and, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, let me share something with you about my experience. And this is just my experience. In my experience with the circles that I run in, the people that uh, uh, that attend our church and, and that I have association with, other ministers that, that preach what I know to be true, preach the word and so forth, I found that the vast majority of people want to overcome sin in their lives. I don't find a lot of people that are trying to get away with stuff. However, there is a percentage, small percentage. In my experience, I don't know if it's small throughout the body of Christ, but small in the circles that I run in, there is a small percentage of people that don't want to hear about lifestyle because they've got things that they don't want to let go of. In my experience, now you judge this for yourself, but in my experience, those are people that are just still on the on the growth in the growth process are people that are still maturing. In other words, maybe a better way to say it is this. The people that are still trying to hold on to something are still spiritually immature trying to convince themselves they're not. Because I remember a time in my life where there were things I didn't want to give up. There were things I didn't want to turn loose of. There were problems I had with my flesh. And I thought, okay, Lord, I don't like the condemnation that comes along with this. I don't like the, the bad feelings that I have when I fall into these things. But some of this stuff... I didn't think I could give up and other stuff I just didn't want to. If I had to be honest with myself, and I wasn't very often, but when I was honest with myself, there was some stuff I just didn't want to let go of. Well, looking back at it, that was just spiritual immaturity on my part. I didn't love God less then than I love him now. It was a lack of understanding of the ability that I had in the blood of Jesus or through the blood of Jesus, the power in the name of Jesus to, number one, overcome the things that I wasn't turning loose of. And then secondly, I didn't realize that it was better for me, that God had better things for me if I let go of the things that I thought I wanted to hold on to. That was a tough lesson for me. I don't know how it works for everybody else, but that was a tough lesson for me. One of the hardest things I've ever had to learn was that God wants better for me than I want for me. Because I want real good for me. Don't you? I mean, nobody wants better for me than me. Except God. And that was real tough for me to learn. That was tough for me to accept. But once I did learn to accept that, I was able to lay down some things that I never thought that I would. And it became, sanctification then became something that was a pleasant experience for me. It became something that was, that I look forward to. It wasn't a God's mad at you if you don't do this just right. Folks, there's nothing you can do to make God mad at you. Nothing you can do. He doesn't love you more because you do right than if you do wrong. Now, he's able to do more for you if you do right than if you do wrong. One of the things that I found, in, uh, and I, I do a lot of reading, do a lot of reading after um, uh, people that have been used of God in great ways, and I have never yet found anybody that was used of God in significant manner, whether it's in evangelism, whether it's as a pastor, whether it's as uh, uh, handling the power of God in some other ministry office, I have never found anybody that was used of God in a significant way that didn't put great emphasis on overcoming their flesh. Never. Now, the way some of them said it, some of them were old-timers, and the way some of them said it, it was really a, a, a do this or else. And if you don't do this, God won't do this for you and, and, and so forth. I didn't even like the way they presented it. It came across in a real hard and condemning manner. Not saying that's what they intended. I, I'm not the judge of their hearts. 
But when I read some of the things, Wigglesworth's a good example. Wigglesworth said, if you don't get your life right, God's not going to use you for anything. If I didn't have any knowledge of, of what the Word of God says about the character and the nature of God, I wouldn't be able to read after Wigglesworth. Because I'd fall into condemnation early on and say, forget this. But he placed such a high priority on the, the process that he had undergone to lay down his fleshly desires and just take whatever God had for him. And he found that to be so much better. He would encourage people to do the same thing, but it was presented in an or else fashion. Well, does God really have or else's? I mean, other than those that are spelled out in the word. I mean, I hate to say it this way, but I hope you understand what I mean. The Bible is pretty clear on get saved or else. But it's not in a condemning way. It's not in the God's looking for to, to, to lower the or else on you. But there is an or else. There is a consequence. Seems like uh, there are extremes in the body of Christ in, in a lot of different ways. Seems like one of the extremes is people don't want to accept the fact that there are consequences to our actions. We want to thank God is so good that there's never a consequence. Well, folks, there is a consequence and it doesn't have anything to do with God being good or bad. The fact is you've got a real enemy out there that's waiting to take advantage of you. And one of the ways he takes advantage of you is to disobey what the word says, even in the way you live your life. Did you find Romans 12 yet? Here's the process of sanctification. There's no way you can sanctify yourself spiritually. That's already been done by the blood of Jesus. Then how do we sanctify ourselves? First Thessalonians 5.23 says that God is looking for us to be sanctified when he returns. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's sanctification, isn't it? It's the first part of the verse starts off, the God of peace will sanctify you holy. Well, how's he going to do that? He's already sanctified your spirit. He's already made that holy. He's already separated that unto himself. The Bible says your spirit belongs to God. But the Bible also says your body belongs to God. Is your body sanctified? Not unless you do something with it. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, by the Holy Ghost, this is how you sanctify yourselves. This is the sanctification lifestyle formula. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, talking to Christians, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Notice it's something you do. You present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now, the Old Testament knows a lot about sacrifices, Sacrifice under the Old Testament meant you took the life of something and that was the end of it. Under the New Covenant, it's a living sacrifice. In other words, you don't take the life of something, you take the desires of something and then live on with different desires. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Notice he's talking about you, meaning the man on the inside. Notice he did not say you present yourselves because your body is not you. The body's the house you live in. Your body is not you. And if you, boy, if you can get a hold of that, that was the number, in my opinion, that was the number one thing that Paul kept trying to tell people and understand, help them to understand when it comes to righteousness. Because you, the man on the inside, your spirit is righteous even when your body does something different, does something unrighteous. The unrighteous action of your body does not change the righteousness of your spirit. That's a hard concept to get, isn't it? Because we're so used to thinking that we are our bodies. We're so used to thinking that whatever happens to our body is that's happening to us. We're so used to thinking the action of our body is really us because we consented to it. But what does that mean? We consented to whatever our body does. We meaning the soul. We meaning the mind and the will. Not the spirit. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations translate that last phrase, reasonable service, as spiritual worship. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 24, when he's talking to the woman at the well of Samaria? He said, God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We in charismatic circles think that means singing in tongues. We think that means singing in the spirit because Paul said when you sing in the spirit you're, or when you sing with other tongues, you're singing in the spirit. 
That's good. That's right. That's true. But that's not spiritual worship. That's spiritual singing, but that's not spiritual worship. Spiritual worship is what you do with your body. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, the man on the inside, present your bodies. Your body is your possession of your spirit. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know the problem with the sacrifice? Something dies. The Bible says every tree that uh, that doesn't bear fruit, God prunes or purges. You know the problem with that? It hurts to cut something off. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Well, he's not talking about running your thumb behind your eye and pop out your eyeball. He means if the desires of your flesh in what you see offend you, then take it away. Take away those desires. Man, that hurts. That hurts the flesh. Have you ever figured out, have you figured out yet that your flesh doesn't want to do what the Bible says do? I'll prove it to you. Make a plan to get up tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock and pray. Your flesh will fight you on that. Plan to miss lunch today to pray. Your flesh will fight you on that. Why? Because it wants to do what it wants to do. And you can make those decisions from the inside. You can, from your spirit, say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to do whatever it is that, uh, that I'm impressed to do or that the Bible tells me to do. And your flesh, at the moment of time that you make that decision, your flesh will say nothing. Yeah, whatever. But when it comes time to eat, when it comes time to pray and your flesh wants to do something else, that's when your flesh says, uh-uh. It was good enough just to make the plan. We don't have to go through with it. That's when you have to decide what you're going to do with your body. Isn't that the way it works? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. It's your possession. You present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, notice what he says about that living sacrifice. When we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, in other words, when we let our spirit man, the man on the inside, dominate our flesh, Notice what he says that is, that action is of presenting your body. It says it's holy and acceptable unto God. Well, holy means sanctified, doesn't it? Holy means sanctified. That means when you present your body to do what the Bible says or to do what the Spirit of God is leading you to do, that's a holy or a sanctified action. Then what is the sanctification of the body? To be dominated by the Spirit. To be ruled by the word of God instead of by its own desires. How are we going to live a lifestyle that is holy and acceptable unto God? By presenting our bodies a servant to the man on the inside where the Holy Ghost lives. And a servant to the word of God. Holy and acceptable unto God, it says, which is your reasonable service or literally, which is your spiritual worship. You want to worship God in spirit? Do something with your body. Now, folks, we've got just the opposite. We've got a lot of charismatic singing in tongues that won't discipline their body. Isn't that true? We've got a lot of the church that's operating in what they think is spiritual worship because they focus on singing, they focus on what we call worship, and there's no discipline of the body. How does God see that? God sees that as singing, not spiritual worship. God sees that just exactly the way Jesus said. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You don't have to go very far to figure that to be true, do you? We can have the right intentions, but unless we take the right actions, it's not really a a sanctification, an act of sanctification. It's just a good desire. One of the things that always interested me is that the Bible says that what we're after, what Jesus indicated that we should be after is when we stand before him at the end, And hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. One of the things that got me, the Lord really dealt with me about this one day. And uh, and he was uh, he was ministering to me about some different things about results. I don't know if you know this or not, but God's a God of results. He talks about bearing fruit. He says you're ordained to go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. In other words, lasting fruit. Not only does God want results, he wants lasting results. Well, that's so different. That's so contrary than what we see from most of the church world today. 
Most of the church world thinks that, that serving God is all about your feelings toward him. Jesus is not going to say to us, well-intended, good and faithful servant. He says to us, well done, if we're a good and faithful servant. In other words, it's the results that we bring forth in our lives. That means it's the results of what we bring forth in presenting our bodies that matters, not just our good intentions. Or maybe it's a better way to say it would be this way. Your good intentions of presenting your body a living sacrifice must be followed through if they're going to be fruitful. You ever met anybody that, that once they said something, they thought it was done? Well, I, we used to have somebody that worked for us in, in that capacity in the church. And, and I'd talk to him and I'd say, look, here's, here's the, what we need to, to have done. We'd sit down, we'd have planning mes- meetings forever. I mean, this guy was a guy, he wanted to talk forever. Wore me out after 10 minutes. But he wanted to talk, wanted to make sure he understood everything. And, and so we would, we'd go through all this kind of stuff. And I'd wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and nothing ever get done. And it came to, came to realize, as a matter of fact, I had to send this guy to a psychologist to understand him. I paid for it. They did some testing on him, and they came back and said, because the guy realized there was a problem, there was a disconnect somewhere, and so he was, he was, you know, agreeable to this. But the psychologist told us, he said, this is a guy that once he makes the plans, he thinks it's the same as having done it. I thought, man, that's a guy I need working for me, isn't it? But I wonder how many of us are, are that way in certain areas of our lives. Once we make a plan, once we think, okay, here's what we want to do or here's what we need to do, that's the job. It's not. If it's not carried out, it's not done at all. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You know what the most liberating thing you can do as a Christian? Present your body a living sacrifice. We think it's the hardest thing that there is to do. And it is difficult. Don't get me wrong. There's difficulty attached to it. But we think it's the hardest thing to do. But once you learn to do it, it is the most liberating thing in all of the body of Christ, all of your Christian life. Now, how are we going to do that? Verse 2 is going to be the key. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's only one thing that's going to transform your Christian life from living like the world to living as the righteousness of God, and that is the transformation of your mind. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The transformation comes through a renewal process. The renewing of your mind. I I cannot read this verse of Scripture without defining the word renew. Renewing literally means, in the Greek, it means reversal by repetition. That means your mind is going to be renewed by the things you say about yourself. That means your mind is going to be renewed to the truth of the word. The more you confess the word of God, the more your mind will accept it. Folks, your mind and your body can be trained. Some people even train their bodies to like going to the gym. If it can be trained to something that's harm, that, that, that hurts, that has an element of pain to it, and suffering attached to it, your body can be trained. How? You've got to get your mind into it. You can't find anybody that likes going to the gym that hasn't gotten their mind wrapped around it first. Because your body will give out. Your body, the first time it starts hurting real good, it'll say, forget this. So if your mind didn't attach to what you're doing, if it's not wrapped around what you're doing, if it's not really sold out to what you're doing, the action that you're trying to take with your flesh, your flesh will give up. And that's exactly what happens with so many Christians. They start off, they see what the Bible says. They may say, well, the Bible says to bring the tithe into the storehouse and God will bless me. Okay, I'm going to tithe. But if their mind is not renewed, if their mind is not wrapped around it, if their mind is not sold on at least the confession, they may not be fully convinced yet, but if they're not confessing, here's what God said is the result, their body will give up because there's pain attached to it. The mind's the key. The mind is the key. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The transformation into the Christian lifestyle comes from the renewing of the mind. Now, notice what it says that happens or results from renewing your mind to the word. That you may prove. The word prove means to determine by experience. Literally, you could translate it as experience. That you may experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
You know how so many Christians say, well, I don't know why God lets this happen to me. You know what they're saying? They're saying that my mind's not renewed to the word. Because when my mind is renewed to the word and my body is presented as a living sacrifice, that's when the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, which, by the way, the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. God doesn't have three wills. The will of God, those things that are good, acceptable, and perfect, come to pass in your life. And that's why so many of those, young, those men of old that were used in great ways by the power of God or in, by, in the service of God, that's why they put such an attachment, that's why they put such an importance on, sanctify, on sanctification, living a sanctified life. Because a sanctified life is a body that's presented unto God as a living sacrifice and a mind that's renewed to the word. It's not some hard thing, not to say that it's easy. There is hardness to it. Paul told that to Timothy. He said, endure hardness as a good soldier. There is hardness to the Christian life. But, oh, the payoff is so worth it. The payoff is so worth it. It's just so worth it. There's nothing more important than the renewing of the mind. Because it's the renewing of the mind to the word of God the reversal by repetition, in other words, the confession of the word, saying what God's word says about you, saying what God's word says belongs to you, saying what we have in Christ Jesus. It's the renewing of the mind to that truth that will enable us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Turn back with me to uh, Romans chapter. Uh, well, turn with me to Romans chapter seven. I'm not sure where we'll start here. Uh, Back up with me to chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Paul's writing to the church. And notice what he says. Um, uh, Let's see. It'd be real easy for me just to read the whole chapter, but I don't want to do that. Um, Well, I'm going to have to start in verse 1. I'll skip around a little bit, but you've got to get the context. Paul says, but he's been teaching the, the concept of righteousness Uh, enabling you to reign in life over your flesh and so forth. He says, what shall we say then? He talks about the concept between grace and sin. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. What shall we say then? Chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he's saying, well, if you follow that logical reasoning that I've just presented, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Shouldn't we therefore, or is it not uh, appropriate or, or at least worth consideration? To say, well, then sin is a good thing because that gives us the grace of God. That's the question he's asking. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's not God's plan. In other words, God doesn't want you to live a life or me to live a life or any Christian to live a life of sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent. That's not the way God wants you to live. Now, that's the way we all start. But the point is God wants us to grow out of that. Now, Paul's going to wind up telling us about his own experience, how he learned it for himself, and that's what qualifies him to teach these truths. But he's, tr- he's saying right off the bat, that's not the way God wants you to live. God doesn't want you to live a life of condemnation because you keep falling into sin. In other words, God expects you to live a sanctified life. He expects you to grow to maturity and live a sanctified life. Verse 2, God forbid. That's not what God wants. How shall we that are dead, literally that we died, how are we, how shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? You know, one of the things that will help renew your mind to the truth of being made righteous in God's sight is to tell yourself you died to sin. So many people are trying to die to sin. The Bible says you already are. You're dead to sin now. By the blood of Jesus. How shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized unto his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That as like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Notice what he says. He says, when you understand... He hasn't explained it to them yet, but we've got the whole thing. We're looking backwards. He's saying, when you understand and your mind is renewed to who you are and what Jesus did for you, you will come to the realization 
that you died to sin, therefore you can and should walk in the newness of life. You have the power, you have the ability to walk in the newness of life. That newness of life is sanctification, folks. It's a body presented unto the Lord as a living sacrifice, and it's a mind renewed to the Word. He's saying because you died to sin by the blood of Jesus, you should walk as a sanctified human being, not just sanctified in spirit, but sanctified in body and sanctified in spirit and uh, soul. Now, this may seem elementary to you, but I'm telling you, this is what wound up making the difference for me. Because I had not, I had been to Bible school, but I had not made the separation between who I am on the inside, who Jesus had made me on the inside, and the way that I'm living my life. I still looked at the outward lifestyle as being that's who I am. And it was only when I came to the realization that that outward lifestyle is not who I am. It's what my body's doing, but it's not who I am. It's only when I made that distinction that I found the power to change my lifestyle. In other words, the knowledge had to come first. The renewing of my mind had to come first before the change in my body could take place. Paul had the same experience. Even so, we should walk in the newness of life. Um, Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Our old man is crucified. He was crucified. It's already done. So many times people talk about crucifying themselves or, or dying out to self. You don't want to die out to self. You want to live according to the new self. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Well, we want that man on the inside to dominate us. We don't want to die out to self. God made us a new self when we got saved. We want to live according to the new self. We don't want to die out to the self. We do want to crucify the flesh, the flesh that he desires. And that's what the Bible says. Our old man was crucified. With Jesus. Therefore, we are a new man on the inside. Therefore, we have the power to control the man on the outside. That's how we walk in newness of life. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Notice it says might be destroyed. It doesn't say it has been destroyed. Whether or not it's destroyed in your life is up to you, not God. But the work has been done for you to destroy the body of sin in yourself by the new man knowing this that our old man is crucified with him literally was crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin verse 7 for he that is dead literally hath died past tense for he that hath died is freed from sin well here's the question then if we've been freed from sin by the sacrifice of jesus Why is the church living such unsanctified lives? Why is Paul having to write to the Corinthians and saying, why are you guys letting fornication in the middle of your church? Why are you guys getting drunk at the the Lord's Supper, communion? Why is he writing to the the, uh, Ephesians and saying, quit stealing, quit lying? Why is he having to tell people to do that? Because they're not living up to who they've been made in Jesus. Can you see that? But notice it says, he that hath died is freed from sin. Boy, you want to meditate on something that will set you free, meditate on that. I'm dead to sin, therefore I'm free from it. I died with Jesus, therefore I'm free from sin. Folks, I'm telling you the thing that made the difference in me. Verse 8, now if we... Be dead, literally died, past tense. If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. In other words, it's talking about the newness of life. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death has no dominion, no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But he that liveth, in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. That's you. Why did Jesus leave you here on the earth after you got saved? God could have set this up any way he wanted to. He could have set up salvation, redemption as a matter of once you get saved, instantly we go to heaven. I can see some advantages to that. Why didn't he set it up that way? Why did he leave you here? He knew you were going to still struggle with your flesh. He knew your body was still going to do things that were unrighteous and sinful. Why did he leave you here? 
Why didn't he take you to heaven at the moment, the instant you got saved before you had a chance to mess up? Why? There had to be a reason. God doesn't do anything accidentally. There had to be a reason. Why didn't he do it like that? Because he wanted you to find out what belongs to you. He wanted you to find out the greatness, the greatness of the power that he left within you because Jesus lives there. He wanted you to discover that you, the man on the inside, who is now embodied or indwelt by the Holy Ghost, he wanted you to find out the exceeding greatness of that power because he lives in there. You couldn't have found that out if you got to heaven. If we'd gone to heaven instantly after we got saved, we'd all be sitting around saying, well, if he'd left me there, I'd have done great things. I know it's the plan of God for him to take us to heaven as soon as we got saved, but boy, can you imagine if he'd have left us here on the earth? Man, we'd have really done some good stuff, wouldn't we? Here's your chance to do some good stuff by discovering the power of God inside you. Verse 11. One of my favorite verses in the scripture. I've only got about a million of them. But this one made a big difference in my life. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead. Now, I'm from the south. I'm from Alabama. So reckon means a lot to me. But what reckon means a lot to me, or what reckon means to me from being in the south is not what this Greek word means that was translated reckon. The Greek word that's translated reckon means to accept to be true that which is already an accomplished reality. In other words, he's saying, accept this to be true in your life because you are dead to sin and sin has no more dominion over you. You're going to have to accept this. He's talking about the mind. He's talking about coming to the understanding. He's talking about renewing your mind to the truth. He says, you're going to have to come to this knowledge to accept this to be true because it already is true. Likewise, reckon or accept this truth that you yourselves are dead to sin. You are already dead to sin. But you're alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God, Pastor Mike. That's so good. Now what do we do? He tells you. Once you accept that to be true, here's the consequence. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You know what the word uh, instruments means? The word instruments means weapons. And it says, whatever you yield yourself to. And the yield, the word yield means to stand ready. It means to present yourself. It means who you stand beside is who you're going to obey. And where it says, neither yield you your members as instruments or weapons unto sin, it's saying, you have the choice. You, the man on the inside, the spirit man, through the soul, the will, you have the choice of who you're going to present your body to serve. It's your choice. Now, that's one of the things that I think is a real important issue. It's a key. Because so many Christians are telling themselves they can't stop sinning. So many Christians are telling them, telling themselves that the things that they keep falling into and stumbling over time after time after time, they don't have power to overcome. And that's a lie. The devil is perfectly happy for you to think that lie and believe that lie for the rest of your life. But it's a lie. The fact is, you, the man on the inside, can change things. You, the man on the inside, can control things through the renewing of your mind. In other words, the adapting or the changing or the adjusting of your will through the knowledge of God's word, your will can determine who your body stands beside, sin or righteousness. Where the Bible says in Romans 12, 2 or 12, 1, where it says, present your body a living sacrifice. It literally is saying, choose which side you're going to stand on. There's always two sides. Always two sides. You decide you meaning the one that controls your will. Now, if anybody says that they can't control their own will, they're lying to themselves. Everybody can control their will. The problem is we don't always want to. We, meaning the flesh, 
doesn't always want the will to side in with the spirit. So the flesh puts a lot of pressure on us and pulls us over into sin. Paul said that was the same struggle he had in Romans chapter seven. He said, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The spirit of man, my spirit, wants to do the right thing. But there is always another work going on inside my body. To sin is ever present with me, not in me, he said, but with me. Sin is always there with me. And he said, I'm struggling with this too, or at least not at the time he's writing this, but sometime earlier in his Christian walk. He said, I know what this struggle is all about. I, the man on the inside, wants to do the right thing, but the body keeps doing the wrong thing. And the man on the inside resents what the body's doing, which means it's not the man on the inside doing it. You don't resent what you do. You, the man on the inside, resents what your body does when it sins. So he says, it's your choice. Paul learned this from experience. He said, I learned that it's my choice who I present my bodies to stand with. Who I present my body, the instruments of my body, the weapons of my body, they can either be weapons of sin or they can be weapons of righteousness. I choose which way they shoot. I choose which way the weapon is used. I, the man on the inside through the will, choose. How is my will going to come to the place where it wants to side in with my spirit? By renewing it to the word. By saying what the word says. Have any of you ever, you remember in school or maybe in your career, at some point in time, you had to learn some big, long thing that you looked at to begin with and thought, I'll never learn all that. But you did. You took it a piece at a time. You committed it to memory or whatever the task was. And before long, you had it going. I remember my kids used to do Bible memorization and stuff. We never did that. I never went to Christian school, so we never did that. I didn't learn half the Bible as a kid that my kids were doing through Christian school. They'd come with these big old long things and there'd be a chapter, you know, and I'd think, dear Lord, I don't even know that chapter. I'm a pastor and I preach it and I don't even know that chapter. And they'd start in and they'd start learning this stuff and they'd always get discouraged right up front. They'd say, oh no, it's so big, it's so long. How are we going to learn this? We take it a verse at a time. And verse by verse by verse, they learned the whole thing. And I was always amazed because I was thinking, man, I don't know how they could learn it. I wouldn't be able to learn that one myself. I don't memorize scripture, but I found that the ones that I get on the inside of me come out. I've had people ask me, Pastor Mike, do you memorize the Bible? Do you memorize scripture? Do you take chapters and try to memorize? I've never tried to memorize anything from the Bible. I found that the most successful and effective thing for me is to say what the word says, get it down on the inside, and then it comes out when it's needed. You see it come out during preaching. I wish it came out like that when I lived. It comes out more for your benefit than it does mine, at least in bigger chunks. Because I have to live the same way you live. It's your choice. Who you present your body to. You're going to present it to sin. Or you're going to present it to righteousness. That's what Paul's saying. This is the process that he learned for himself, folks. This is the process that leads you into victory. Neither yield ye or present your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield or present yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments or weapons of righteousness unto God. You ever thought of your body as a weapon of righteousness? That's what the Bible says it is. That's exactly what the Bible says it is. You may think it's your stumbling block. You may think it's the biggest problem you have in your life. And it's the biggest weapon you have. All you have to do is change sides. Verse 16. Know ye not that to whom you yield, here's that word yield again, present yourself to stand beside, to be at hand or ready aid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. He's saying you as a Christian can still serve sin through the action of your flesh. Doesn't change the fact that you go to heaven when you die. Doesn't change the fact that Jesus made you righteous. That can never be changed. That can never be undone. There's not any sin that can overcome the blood of Jesus that sanctified you and separated you unto God. Can't do it. Impossible. But your body is a weapon. It's going to either be a weapon for good, for righteousness, or it's going to be a weapon unto sin. Verse 17, but God be thanked 
that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Now, folks, I got to tell you something. He's speaking in faith about these people. Because they've got the same issues in their church that we have in ours. They have the same issues in their life that you have in your life. They have the same things to deal with that all of us deal with today. He's speaking in faith and he's saying, here's the key. The key is to accept this doctrine. The word doctrine just simply means teaching. He's saying, accept the things that I'm teaching you to be true. Because I know you. I know you want to serve God from your heart just like I want to serve God from my heart. And if you accept these things to be true and begin to accept the fact that you are, number one, dead to sin, that you decide, the man on the inside decides who you serve, whether sin or whether righteousness, who you present yourself to, when you accept that to be true, I know what the result is going to be in your life. It's going to be the same as the result in my life, Paul is saying. You're going to walk in victory. And notice it comes down to accepting doctrine, accepting teaching. In other words, it comes down to renewing the mind to the truth that he's teaching them. It's all about the mind, folks. It's all about what you renew your mind to. I've got a a friend, well, really an acquaintance. I'm not real close to him. But I've got an acquaintance in the ministry. And this guy, I mean, he's a preacher. He is an exhorter. He's an encourager. He gets up there in, in, in service. And, and man, he's just, he's all over the place. He's bouncing the walls. He's running up and down the aisles. The sound system in their church is, is unreal. They've got to have it to where he can go anywhere with his wireless mic and not get feedback. He winds up preaching from the back of the crowd sometimes. And the, the, he's got TV cameras in there and they've got to follow him around. Everybody's looking. He's behind their head and they're looking up at the screen to see who he is, you know, where he is. This guy is everywhere. I, and he's, everybody loves this guy. He's just Mr. Personality. He's full of jokes. He knows more jokes than any human being I've ever seen. And I was talking to him one time. We met each other at a conference in the middle of the country somewhere. And I was talking to him and I heard so many great things. His church is growing, busting out of the seams because everybody goes for the laugh. Everybody just loves it. I mean, it's an entertainment. It's a show. And I love this guy. I'm not putting anything, putting him down by it. It's just the way that it is. He gets a lot of people saved. He gets some people saved and they don't know they got saved to the left. <laughs> they're just in the middle of the show and all of a sudden they're down at the altar and it's like, how did I get down here? It's just that kind of atmosphere. It's a party. And, uh, and again, I'm not criticizing anybody. That's uh, more power to it. But we were talking about something and an and issue came up. There was another group of ministers that we were part of and an issue came up and, and a couple of the guys that were talking about things had, had done some real study on it. And, and so they were they were quoting some scriptures and they were asking, well, what about this? And what do you guys think about that? And, and, and it wasn't an issue for me. I remember Brother Hagin teaching this, you know, 20 years ago. So it was settled for me. And so I just kind of said casually, let everybody else have their say. And I just kind of casually answered, well, you know, the Bible says blah, blah, blah. And then over here it says this, that, and the other. And. Then the Bible says this, that, and the other. And the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So this is not a problem for me. Well, it kind of had the effect of throwing cold water on everybody because the debate was over. And I, I, I didn't care. I mean, they sit around and argue about it all day long. But for me, it's done. I, you know, well, once you know the truth, what is, there, what is there to debate? And so these guys are kind of looking at each other and they say, well, we're going to we're gonna have to study that. We never thought about that. And so then I said, well, guys, don't think I'm so smart. Brother Hagin said this and this and such book. When I worked with him, I knew what was in all the books. And so I just said, go to this book and read this. Brother Hagin covers this, this territory. And so, you know, that answered the question for me. Well, after the thing was over, everybody kind of said goodbye. And after it was over, this guy said, man, I can't believe you know the Bible like you do. And I'm thinking, I didn't say a word, but I'm thinking, I can't believe you know jokes like you do. How do you remember jokes? He said that. He said, how do you remember the Bible? How do you remember so, so much scripture? And I said, well, I really don't try to remember stuff. I just read the Bible, try to put as much of it into my heart as I can, and it comes up when I need it. And I'm thinking, how in the world do you remember jokes? I mess up so many jokes, I quit telling them. I get halfway in the middle of a joke and think, wait a minute, I'm combining this one with that one, and I don't remember what the punchline is. I don't get it. But it comes down to this, folks. Whatever you feed on is what you're going to be full of. Which identifies real clearly what a lot of people are full of. (laughs) 
It's absolutely the truth. What you feed on is what you're going to be full of. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying when you come to accept these truths, when you come to realize that you, the man on the inside, your spirit has been made righteous. And the outward man doesn't affect the inward man, but the inward man can affect the outward man through the renewing of the mind. When you come to realize that, then you will come to victory. Now, we're right here in Romans chapter 6. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 7. I've quoted a little bit of this, but I want to refer to it again. Notice what Paul said in verse 15. He said, for that which I do, and and forgive the King James English here. It gets a little bit confusing. He said, for that which I do, I allow or don't want to do. Allow not means I don't want to do. In other words, he's saying, my body's doing things I, the man on the inside, doesn't want to do. For what I would, in other words, what I want to do, that do I not. He's talking about the man on the inside. My spirit wants to do the right thing, but that's not what my body is doing. But what I hate from the inside, what the spirit man hates, notice he calls I, him, the real man on the inside. But what I hate, that's the stuff I'm doing. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is not good. In other words, he's saying if my body's doing what my spirit resents, then I'm consenting unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it. In other words, he's saying, my body's not me. It's not me that's doing it. But sin that dwelleth in me, literally in my flesh. For I know that in me, now here's, here's going to qualify it. He's going to, he's going to describe what he's talking about. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, not my spirit, but my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Why? Because at the time that he's talking about this, he hasn't renewed his mind to the word. He hasn't come to the realization of the truth that he's telling them. He's saying, this is why I was in my struggle. Because I wasn't, I didn't have anything. I wasn't equipped to be able to stop my body from doing what the man on the inside resented. Now, folks, you need to understand something. If Paul said he had trouble with his body, don't think you're not going to have trouble with yours. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he said, but I keep my body under. Me, the man on the inside, I keep my body under. I control my flesh. Lest after having preached to others, I myself might be found a castaway. If Paul says he has to keep his body under, don't think for a minute you're not going to have to keep yours under. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. I, the man on the inside, wants to do right. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. He's saying the same thing that so many Christians find themselves in. And that is, he said, I couldn't understand, didn't understand what power I had to control my body. For the good that I would or want to do, I'm not doing. In other words, that's not the way I'm living in my life. But the evil which I, the man on the inside, doesn't want to do, that's what's happening. I find in a law that when I would do good from my spirit, evil is present with me. Notice he says evil was present with him, not in him. It was present with him. Now, where he says in the previous verse, sin was in him, he means sin in his flesh. He referred to that in a few verses before. He says the flesh always has sin in the presence of the spirit that wants to do right. So what are we going to do about this? He got to the place where he was almost ready to give up. He said in verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's the spirit, the one that was already sanctified by the blood of Jesus. But I see another law in my members or my body warring against the law of my mind. Notice how he connects those two. He says there's a law of the body and a law of the mind. What's the law of the body? The law of the body is sin. It's the presence of sin because we lived in a sinful world, still do. But we were tainted by sin because of Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. He's saying, but there's another law in my mind. Now, what's the law of your mind? Whatever you choose to renew your mind to. Paul's mind at this point in time was not renewed to the word. He's just coming to the place where he's coming to understand the power of God that he has on the inside of him. But he's not living in it yet. He's not operating according to it yet. So he says, there's another law in my body and there's another law in my mind. Because my mind is siding in with my body and that's why I'm doing the wrong thing. But I see another law, law of God's on the inside, the spirit, 
But there's another law in my mind and another law in my body. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. In other words, he's saying the mind is the battleground. The mind is the battleground. Sin in your flesh doesn't attack your spirit. It doesn't have access to your spirit. The devil, folks, does not have access to your spirit. But the battleground is the mind. The sin that is ever present with Paul, the sin that is ever present with you. John said this way. John said, if we say we have no sin, there's no, the truth is not in us. We're lying and the truth is not in us. What does he mean? He means sin in the flesh. Now, Paul was, or John, excuse me, was pretty spiritually mature at that point in time. He walked in love to such a degree that they couldn't kill him. His enemies couldn't kill him. They tried to boil him in oil and he wouldn't die. So they wound up just having to exile the guy, send him away to a desert island. And yet he said that sin is ever present with us. He said that sin is always going to be in your flesh. Well, he must have learned how to overcome it then if he's walking in love to that degree. And if he's walking in love, that means the spirit is dominating his flesh, doesn't it? The law of God, which is the law of love, which is in our spirits, shed abroad in our spirits by the Holy Ghost. That means he's allowing his, the love of God in the, on the inside in his spirit to dominate his flesh. He must be successful in that with the, the, the things that have happened to him. If his enemies can't kill him, gee, I'd be satisfied with that level. What about you? Yeah, he said sin is ever there. He said there is always going to be sin in your flesh. So there's always going to be a war in your mind. Now, the more you train your mind, the more you renew your mind to the word, the easier and easier that battle gets. But there's always a battle. I see another law in my members, my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Notice he said it brings him, his spirit. His spirit has to go along with where his body does, even though he resents it. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Notice his conclusion. At the point in time that he's struggling with these things, here's what he said his attitude was. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In other words, he's saying, what answer is there for me? My spirit resents the sin that my body's in participating in. I understand that the law is in the, the, the war is in my mind. My will is for the things of God, but then the sin in my body brings it over into doing the wrong thing. That's where the battleground is. That's where the war is. It's in the mind concerning the will. Who's going to deliver me from this? He comes to the understanding of who will. I thank my God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Verse Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore. Everybody say therefore. Here's what he understood. Here's what, here's what brought him into victory. Here's what brings you and me into victory. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the reason God left you here on the earth, knowing that you were going to mess up, is because he's already paid the price for you with the blood of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. In other words, Paul's saying, I came to understand that I've got to quit fighting against my flesh and accept the fact that Jesus has done something for me. Now, you may say, but Pastor Mike, you didn't quote all of that verse. I quoted all of it to send the original translation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Notice the rest of the verse that says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That is part of verse four. The translators literally, the translators pulled that phrase from verse four and stuck it in verse one. Now, there were no verses, but they pulled it out of a, of a, a later thought and stuck it in verse one. Now, why did they do that? I've got an idea, but I can't tell you that it's true. My idea, my supposition on this is that they could not accept that Paul is saying there is no condemnation to people that even that are falling into their, the sinful nature of their flesh. They must be, they must have thought he must be saying that when you learn to do right, then there is no more condemnation. But that's not what the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to write. Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation because God understands the struggle between your spirit and your flesh, which takes place in the mind, the battle that takes place in the mind, God knows that there is therefore now no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because Jesus paid the price. Yeah, but doesn't God see me doing wrong and messing up? Yeah, just like he saw Paul doing wrong and messing up. 
What's the answer? The answer is very simply this, folks. God knew that if you stayed with the word, if you renewed your mind to the word, you'd overcome. In other words, God is merciful enough to let you grow up. Just like he let Paul grow up. So wherever you are on your Christian walk spectrum, if you're stumbling and falling day after day after day, and most people in my experience, most people don't stumble over ten different sins. They stumble over one thing ten different times. You remember Jesus said to the rich young ruler when he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, one thing you lack. That's usually the case with everybody. I, I used to read that and think, wow, I only had one thing wrong with him. But the more I examine things in my own life and the more I work with other people, I find that it's one sin, one area, one particular thing that people keep stumbling over time and time and time again. You don't have 50 things to conquer. You've got one thing to conquer. And the key to conquering that is to realize that Jesus has sanctified you in spirit. And the power to overcome your flesh is by renewing your mind to the word. Can I show you one last scripture? Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Corinthian church was a mess. They had sin in their midst and they wouldn't do anything about it. They had uh, the, the guy that was living with his father's wife, had taken his father's wife, living openly, and nobody was saying anything about it. Everybody was just saying, oh, don't they make a cute couple? Communion services had turned into drunken feasts. They were operating in spiritual pride. Some saying, well, I'm following Paul. Others saying, I'm following Apollos. Apollos is a lot better preacher. Others saying, well, I like Peter. Who knows why? But they were all divided. They were divided between different people for different reasons. And Paul said, you're carnal Christians. You're baby Christians. You're not even mature enough for me to tell you the truth and feed you with any meat whatsoever. Notice what Paul said the answer was for them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 10, before he ever gets into the problems that they have, notice he gives them a summary. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish in you. Chapter 1, verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all do two things. Speak the same thing. Here's the key to a successful church. We're all saying the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you. Now, that's their problem is divisions. They're divided between Paul, Apollos, Peter, and other ones like that. He said, the key is no divisions. Everybody treats everybody equally in the church and that we're all saying the same things. How is that going to take place? How can that possibly take place when you got people from such different backgrounds, such different career paths and so forth, different races, different ethnicity? You know the word I'm trying to say. How are we all going to do that? He keeps going that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. What's going to bring them to the same mind or the same way of thinking? What's going to bring them to the same judgment? The Word of God. In other words, he's saying, as you renew your minds to the Word, and he's talking about through the teaching he's going to give them, he's talking about through the letters he's writing to them, the truth that he's going to tell them, he's saying, as you come to renew your minds to accept the truth that I'm going to tell you, it will stop the divisions, and it will stop you guys from speaking differently against, you know, about one another and speaking against one another in different situations because you will then judge things the same way because of the truth. In other words, the key is the word. Renewing your mind to the word. Now, Paul doesn't say a word to the Corinthians about renewing their mind like he does to the Romans. Why? Because he approaches it a different way. He simply tells them the truth, tells them, here's what you need to do to accept the truth. You need to quit saying about other people, well, I'm following Paul or I'm following Apollos or I'm following Peter. He's saying, you've only got one spiritual father. Accept the truth that I'm telling you as I follow me as I follow Jesus. As they accept what he says, they are renewing their mind to the truth. Which will change the way they talk and will change the way they act toward one another. In other words, it's the same thing. The same principle is the knowledge of the word accepted that brings sanctification of the mind or the soul and the body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to renew our minds to the truth. Father, what a wonderful privilege it is to be able to think your thoughts. Even as you said in, through Isaiah the prophet, 
For my ways are not your ways, neither are your thoughts my thoughts. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so high is my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Thank you, Father, that you've revealed your thoughts and your ways to us through your word. You weren't just trying to tell us too bad for you because you'll never think my thoughts. Instead, you revealed your thoughts by giving us the written word. Thank you, Father, that according to your word, Jesus has sanctified us in spirit and empowered us to present our bodies a living sacrifice unto you, to yield our bodies as instruments or weapons of righteousness in this earth and not weapons of sin. And it's through the renewing of our minds, Father, the accepting of the truth of all that Jesus has done for us, that we become empowered to control our bodies, that we might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing. Lord, what a privilege it is to live a sanctified life. It's not a burden. It's not a chore. It's a privilege. Because we, the new creatures that we've been made through Christ Jesus, have the power to overcome and to dominate the sin that's in our flesh. It may ever be present with us, Father, but we will ever overcome it by the blood of Jesus and the power of your word. Father, we pray one last thing concerning this this morning, and that is that our lives would be a light that would shine the goodness of God upon everyone we come in contact with. Our desire, Father, is that we live for you. No longer live for ourselves, no longer live to suit other people but that we would live for you and that people would see Jesus in us. For it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. The real freedom in our Christian lives, folks, is when we learn to accept the truth of the word, renew our minds to it, and present our bodies as instruments or weapons, literally weapons of righteousness. Do you realize that every time you do what the Bible says to do, instead of what your flesh wants to do, you are inflicting damage on the devil's kingdom? That's what it means to, for your body to be a weapon of righteousness. You're showing forth. You're going forth as an army in the soldier. Uh, uh, you're going forth as a soldier in the army of God. I'll get it right in a minute. And you're fighting with weapons of righteousness. It's all the way we live our lives. We see other Jesus is shown through us to other people. Others look at us and they see the love of God in us. You know, Jesus said the one thing that people would know you by is your love, not even by your knowledge, but by your love. So the knowledge of God's word is supposed to translate into the love of God in action. Amen. That's the lives that we want to live before others. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us this evening if you can. You're dismissed.